My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Lost podcast, we listened to a presentation I made on January 27, 2017, at the 5th Annual Martin Luther King Jr. Civil Rights Symposium of the Columbus Bar Association in Columbus, Ohio. I want to talk about body cameras, the truth about body cameras. So just uh, to make sure we're all on the same page as to what body cameras are, we're talking about a small device about the size of a pack of cigarettes. It could be mounted on uh, just below the shoulder of an officer on their uniform. Sometimes they're mounted with headgear or on the side of their glasses. But a small device, and the idea is an officer starts their shift, and depending on the law and the policy in that jurisdiction, they may turn on the camera at the beginning of their shift or they may turn it on uh, at some subsequent point if there's a need to. Uh, but the camera stays on, and at the end of the shift, the officer returns the body camera with their other equipment at the end of the shift, whether it's 8, 10, 12 hours later, to the police station and puts it in a docking station where the battery's charged and, most importantly, the video recordings from the day are uploaded to some server. And quite oftentimes, that's cloud storage. If we think about it, there's some major reasons why we would want to have body cameras and the ability to record police officers, not only with audio recordings, but video recordings. So the idea is we have increased transparency. It should help with police legitimacy. So if there are questions as to what happened, we've got some sort of recording of it. And, you know, I often talk about in my research when we look at police shootings that the video recordings, whether they're dash cam videos, body cam videos, surveillance and security videos, or smartphone videos, there are cameras everywhere. It changes the narrative. The police have always owned the narrative, and a dead man can't talk, so now we have more to the story sometimes, and sometimes it does change the narrative. So we look at increased police officer behavior. Are officers going to act more professionally, commit less misconduct while they're wearing the body cams? There has been a suggestion in some preliminary research that citizens who interact with officers who are wearing the body cams temper their behavior and perhaps they act in a better way knowing that they're going to be recorded. Police officers often have complaints that are filed against them, and many times a complaint is closed out, found to be unfounded, and they just can't prove it one way or the other. It should help with expedited resolution of some citizen complaints, and it's going to become a big deal in terms of litigation. So 1983 action is going to be a big deal to have body cam video footage. And then, of course, the uh, recordings are a big help in terms of uh, charging decisions and prosecution and opportunities for police training. And what I mean by that is sometimes things don't go the way they're supposed to go. Policing is not a nice, neat thing. It's a very ugly thing the way it unfolds on the street quite often. And these recordings may give some great opportunities for training to try to improve officers' behaviors and conduct on the street. There are a number of concerns, though. Uh, one of the concerns is with citizens' privacy. When are the... Uh, recording is going to be going on. So something came up recently in the District of Columbia where they were looking at new policies and the big question was are the body cams going to be on if we go into somebody's house? If we're there on a call, if we're there on, if the police are there and there's uh, something serious, something traumatic going on, there's a lot of questions about privacy of citizens. So not only uh, an offender or a suspect, but victims and other people on the scene. So that's something that is, it's really in the infancy stages in terms of trying to think about how this technology is going to be implemented. So I spoke to a deputy sheriff 
uh, a while back about body cams, and I wanted to know what his perspective was. His perspective was they were implementing them about three months later, so he planned to retire two months after our conversation. So he had a very uh, a definitive opinion on the body cams, and he pointed out, well, this is crazy. What about, I can't go to the bathroom now during my shift. Well, I suggested that perhaps he could turn the camera off, it did give me pause when I realized later on the same deputy sheriff finished the conversation with me, went out to his cruiser and got into a vehicle that has a fleet management system that tracks his car, including a GPS tracker. They can figure out uh, whether he had his emergency lights on at any time, whether he was braking, how fast he was going, exactly where he was. And he's already forgotten about that technology. So I often wonder, you know, once officers are wearing this equipment and utilizing it, are they going to revert to their old ways, just forgetting that they have the cameras on? And I think that's a legitimate question. A lot of problems in terms of developing policies, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes, but it's a big area because there are no best practices that have been promulgated by the government. They're working on these kinds of things. So is the IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and other organizations trying to give guidance to state and local law enforcement agencies. In terms of some of the resource issues and logistical commitments, it really is a big issue in terms of what are we going to do with recordings in terms of where are we going to keep them and who's going to pay for it? And, that, and that's a legitimate problem. Research on body cams is in its infancy. There's literally fewer than a dozen studies, empirical research, about body cams. And the initial research, frankly, it's inconsistent. There's some research that suggests that body cams do not lead to a reduction in the use of force by police. There's other research that suggests, well, maybe it does. There's some research to suggest that at least initially, police officers' behavior on the street, they're more proactive, more citizen contacts, more traffic stops, more officer proactive behaviors. So there's a number of studies going on currently. Some of them are funded by the National Institute of Justice, which is the research arm at the uh, Office of Justice Programs at the U.S. Department of Justice. And I if you're interested in the research, I would call your attention specifically to the research of Michael White. He's a criminologist at Arizona State University, and I think his research is really cutting edge, and it's uh, methodologically, the scientific rigor is excellent in his studies. In terms of laws and policies, this is a rapidly changing area. In the last year, I'm aware of 18 states that have passed new laws directly dealing with body cameras just in the last year. So I mentioned best practices and standards are still evolving. If an agency is going to implement body cameras and policies on video cameras, they need to be thinking about the video capture, viewing of the videos, how the video recordings are going to be used, under what circumstances will they be released, what are the public records considerations in that specific state, how and where and who's going to pay for the storage of these digital files, and what are the processes for audits and controls of the videos. So there are a number of laws on the books in most states that deal with recordings, so not specific as to body cams. So in some places, there are requirements that both parties to a recording, if it's two people in a room, would have to give their consent. Other states only require one party consent. In other words, if I was in a room with one of you and I knew I was going to record you, in some states that's allowed. I don't think it is in Ohio. Perhaps if there are any divorce attorneys in the room, they could tell us the answer to that question. There are laws in terms of privacy expectations that are already on the books in some places that would apply to body cams, but they were not initially legislation that was enacted for that purpose. And again, 
the whole issue of public records requests. And there have also been laws specific to body cameras in a number of states that require a study group or a pilot project in terms of planning and implementation of use of body cams by state and local law enforcement agencies, laws that dictate where and when the cameras can be used, restrictions on public access, and again, something having to do with the requirements of video storage. I'm not an attorney in Ohio, but I'm aware of several statutes that are applicable to body cameras, specifically dealing with two-party consent to recordings and public records requests of law enforcement agencies where you would have some sort of a disclosure that would reveal the identity of a victim, a witness, a case where a suspect has not yet been charged. It would disclose confidential investigatory techniques and then I'm also aware of two specific bills that are pending currently in the state legislature, one that would deal with operational policies for body cameras, and the second would deal with exemptions to public records requests in certain uh, circumstances. The way I got into thinking about body cams is I study police crime, so crime by sworn law enforcement officers, and it's been something I've been doing for about 13 years. It started uh, as a lot of research does, as a bet in graduate school, and it just, it just kept going, and uh, here I am 13 years later, and it's still going on. In the last two years, 2015 and 2016, there were, by my count, 31 uh, sworn law enforcement officers, so non-federal, state and local law enforcement officers across the country, who were charged with murder or manslaughter resulting from an on-duty shooting where an officer shot and killed someone. And of those 31 cases, there was video evidence in 58% of the cases, 18, and specifically body camera video evidence in 10 of the cases. And by the way, in those 10 cases, frankly, most of the 18 cases, I have doubts that the officer would have been criminally charged but for the existence of the video evidence. In some of these cases, the videos show that officers act in ways that are inconsistent with their law enforcement training. And that's something that is new. We always thought, when I was in the New Hampshire State Police Academy uh, many years ago, something called the Newhall Incident, an incident in uh, Southern California where officers didn't stick with their training and they bent down to pick up spent brass in the middle of a, a gun battle uh, and got shot and killed at point-blank range. Now, some people would argue that's a legend, it never happened, but a lot of people say it's the gospel truth. But the point of it is, we always thought that if an officer was trained whether it's good or bad, they're going to act consistently with their training in a stressful situation, in a street combat situation. And what we're seeing with these videos is that's just not true. It's just not true in some of the cases. In fact, it's not true to the extent that it's shocking to some of the police chiefs I've talked to around the country about specific cases in their jurisdiction. And then we have, in some of these cases, the officers who were the shooter gave statements and or wrote reports that were inconsistent with the video evidence. Now, that could mean that their recollections were faulty. It could mean that they were flat out lying. I don't know what it means, but it's interesting because we now have an alternate narrative. I don't want to say alternate facts, but <laughs> maybe. There's uh, a few cases here where there's actually officers planting evidence, drop guns. So many of us have seen the video, one of the more shocking videos I've seen, Officer Michael Slager in North Charleston, South Carolina, where he very casually kills a man who's running away from him, and his very first thought was to plant his taser right next to the fallen man's body. That's a drop gun. That is uh, amazing behavior. He actually testified at his trial that he didn't know why he did it, doesn't even remember doing it. I don't know. Uh, it ended in a hung jury, by the way.
And then there's a suggestion, and I don't know that this happens, but there's a suggestion that maybe in some of these cases, officers have tampered with the body cams. So there have been incidents where there's uh, not the missing 18 minutes, but the missing 15 seconds of the video that's really crucial. And there have been incidents where at the end of the day, they found out that the officer's body cam batteries were installed upside down and they didn't uh, record at all. Uh, I guess we'll see how legitimate those issues are. Sometimes the officers turn off the cameras or they never turn them on during their shift. And then, and this is maybe a hard concept to get across, but videos always don't tell the whole story especially in that what an officer is seeing from their eyes may be a different angle than where the camera's pointed. There may be obstructions. There's a lot of questions that come up, and I'm going to give you some examples of that. If we have time, I have four videos I want to show you. The first ones, uh, two are a little less than four minutes each and then much shorter for the last two. I'll warn you several things. First of all, these are shooting cases where somebody is uh, shot and killed by an officer. And secondly, the audio is either going to be too loud for us or not loud enough. So the first one is uh, Ray Tensing, who was a police officer at the University of Cincinnati, and he's making a traffic stop off campus. <laughs> Thank you. 
Okay, so Officer Tensing, first thing he says there, I thought I was going to get run over. So I thought, well, I don't see how you could have thought that. That just seems absurd to me in that position. But then a few months later, there was a shooting in Atlanta with an officer by the name of Burns. And he, too, maintained that he thought he was going to get uh, run over by a vehicle. And the video, apparently, it hasn't been publicly released, uh, would show something that would indicate that that just would not have been possible. But I found out that six months prior to that shooting in Atlanta, Burns had, in a traffic stop, been dragged by a vehicle some 68 feet. So it raises some interesting questions for me about post-traumatic stress and an officer's perception in a very stressful situation. So I'm not so quick to discount Tensing's belief, at least his subjective belief. Objectively, I don't see it, uh, and that's a problem for him. But we'll, uh, we'll see at his next trial. Now here we have a shooting involving two officers in Albuquerque, uh, Dominic Perez and Keith Sandy, and they're in a several-hour conversation standoff with a gentleman who the suggestion was he's homeless and potentially mentally ill. So this is the last uh, part of that. And I think the video or the audio is a little bit uh, hard to hear.
Okay, so uh, there you have a man, he had a knife in either hand. Here, too, we have a trial that ended, both officers' trial ended in a mistrial initially, and then the prosecutor recently has dropped the charges without prejudice, though, to refile against uh, Perez. Trial is being rescheduled for Keith Sandy. All right, so here we have a uh, reserve deputy, Tulsa County Sheriff's Office in Oklahoma. It's an older gentleman, so this is uh, a street encounter. He went on some sort of a drug raid, a drug buy, something like that, with officers or with other deputies, and, and we'll see what happens here. What did he say? Oh my God, I shot him, something like that. He claims that he meant to grab his taser and grab the wrong weapon and shot him. I don't know why he would have used a taser in that situation when other officers are trying to handcuff somebody. So Bates was convicted uh, on a manslaughter charge recently and got about a three-year prison sentence, which I think he started. I'm not 100% sure on that. So he's uh, convicted. Let's look at one more. And this is out of uh, Hummelstown, Pennsylvania, which is near Harrisburg in the Cumberland Valley, and we have Officer Lisa Merkel, and she's encountered uh, a guy on the street. So, so far we've got two mistrials of these videos, one conviction, and let's see this uh, video.
So Merkel was acquitted at trial and then fired, I believe. You know, we could save it for another day to have the discussion about how difficult it is for prosecutors to get convictions in these cases. Juries just seem very reluctant to convict officers. I'm sure that the prosecutors in each of these four cases thought they had strong cases that were aided by the video evidence, and it just, uh, it just doesn't always uh, work out that way. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. Support was provided by the Wallace Action Fund of Tides Foundation on the recommendation of Mr. Randall Wallace. My name is Phil Stinson and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash policeintegritylost.